Hey folks, welcome back to the virtual world. I'm your host and software engineer, Ty. I've got a bit of a longer intro for you today and I've tried to record it like nine times. So if I make any mistakes or fumble over myself, I'm just gonna keep going at this point. First of all, I wanna thank the Rust community for coming out in full force for the most recent episode with Steve Klavnik. It has been by far my most listened to episode. I really love the Rust programming language and its community and I would like to thank you all personally for tuning in again if you're here. Please follow me on Twitter at TYTR underscore dev so that we can interact. Please don't be a stranger. The goal of this podcast is to help bring us all just a little closer together, something that won't be possible if the podcast remains a unidirectional form of communication. I'm always looking for more guests, so please reach out to me if you'd like to chat or if you think you have something that the software engineering community can benefit from. Next up, I'd like to thank the composer of today's music, Plasmario. This is the first time I've featured someone else's music on the podcast. I came across their work on SoundCloud and fell in love with the style. You can check out their work at soundcloud.com slash plasmariel. That is P-L-A-S-M-A-R-I-E-L. I may be botching the pronunciation. Lastly, people have been giving me some constructive feedback about the podcast. I'm still getting used to everything, so I'm bound to make mistakes. With the last episode, I never really introduced Steve formally. So today, before we begin, let me set the stage just a bit. Today, you'll be listening to my interview with Alex Creighton. He's been working with Mozilla on the Rust programming language and the Rust WebAssembly ecosystem for almost six years. He's certainly one of the leading domain experts in the Rust and WebAssembly community. I sat down with him and asked him a bunch of questions about his background and his thoughts about the Rust ecosystem going forward. As always, please enjoy the conversation. All right, everybody. Today is July 31st, 2020. It's just after 4 p.m. EST, and I'm sitting down with Alex Crichton, who I'm now going to ask if I pronounced his name correctly. <laughs> it's close enough. It's uh, I don't think anyone actually gets it right on the first try. I I, I blame our, our own family for kind of butchering the pronunciation. Do you want to do you want to give it a real shot and let me know what it sounds like? If you're if you're curious, it's called Crichton. It's actually it's it's not really based on the spelling at all, but Crichton is the way that we go. Gotcha. Yeah, I was never going to get it on the first try then, so it's all good. I don't feel too bad. <laughs> so, how's it going? It's going all right. We're uh, surviving, you know, COVID and all that, and doing okay. And otherwise, it's pretty good. Yeah, and you guys are doing. Uh, you and you and your loved ones are all doing well. Yep. Thankfully, we uh, we're in the nice state of Iowa, where everyone's already pretty far away from each other. So it's uh, <laughs> not not as bad here as as it is everywhere else. Thankfully. Yeah, for sure. I live in Florida, which is kind of the poster child for aha, these people are fuck ups. So Ooh, man. Uh, yeah, it's a little dangerous here, but uh I can believe that. Yeah. So uh I'm gonna start with a couple of like really boring personal questions um that you probably think no one cares about, but <laughs> sure. What we're just gonna we're just gonna see what happens. Sounds uh, good. So what's your favorite color? Ooh, that'd be green. That's an easy one. 
cool. Yeah, it's a it's a bad choice, but uh, we'll get into <laughs> it. Um, what are your hobbies like outside of software? You know, honestly, this is one where I'm not really the best at, but the main one for me is video games. I, uh, I play a lot of Final Fantasy nowadays, so I, that's my uh, main thing. My main thing. So video games and TV shows, and the other video game I played a lot of recently is Factorio. So if anyone wants to play Factorio or wants to know about Factorio, I would highly recommend it. Yeah, Factorio is really cool. You talk, you play Final Fantasy fourteen? I do. I've been I've done it for I think about a little over a year now. Nice. Yeah, I actually a uh, funny story. I just got into it. I don't know why, nice. but uh, I, I I've had the game for years, but I I never played it and uh, picked it up about a week ago. <laughs> it's actually a really good time. They've got a new major patch coming out in like a week and a half. So if you if you want to get into it, it's a pretty pretty good spot. Cool. All right. Uh, what is your like? What's your dev environment and platform of choice? Are you like Windows guy, Mac guy? I uh, so I've got I'm, I'm sitting at home. I've, I've got my desk. Uh, the, the the main thing about my dev environment is my desk currently has a bunch of Legos on it. So I've got the Lego Millennium Falcon, the Lego Star Destroyer, the Lego Saturn V, and another another um, Star Destroyer. Like anyway, you're probably thinking more about virtual but i've got a uh, uh two computers one is my windows computer which i primarily work on so that's like the actual desktop i have but i just use it to ssh into a linux com- linux computer sitting next to it which is a lot more powerful that i work on so i'm a uh, i'm like still stuck in the 80s with vim tmux ssh and that's pretty much it you know funny story i i actually am kind of moving more towards that i think a lot of people are trying to get back to the 80s <laughs> it's got that uh nice retro feel and now nah, for me the main reason that i did it a long time ago was um it used to be a remote server so i traveled a lot and i could just ssh in and do work on my like home server which was super powerful so i didn't have to drain my laptop battery because lord knows compiling rusty takes a little bit of energy yeah for sure uh it's not as bad as some but it is it does take a minute <laughs> it's um, true so what what's your background like? Are you purely technical? Did you kind of start as a as a programmer and and move into the field, or you know, did you did you have a little bit of a different background? Yeah, I actually um, started programming when I was I think sixteen, and like between the sophomore and junior years of high school, and at that point I just I basically took a took over my life from there. So I, I got a degree in computer science from university, and then I just went straight to tech after that. I actually had a a very brief stint where I was at Dropbox working on stuff, but I very quickly moved over to Mozilla working on Rust, and I've been here ever since for about I think like six years now at this point. Yeah, for sure. I'll talk. We'll talk about that next. Um, did how did Dropbox go? Did you did you enjoy it? Why'd you leave? <laughs> it was a, so it's a great company. It was a lot of fun to work for. Great people. Just not a fun project that I was working on. I was working on uh, payments and Python and refactoring all that, which are three words you don't really want to. At least I'm not going to want to put together anytime soon. So, I was working there, and like uh, basically the the job for Rust opened up after I had already started, and I hadn't even started Rust by the time I accepted the Dropbox offer. So, kind of. Just a lot of time passed from when I accepted the job offer to when the job the job opening opened up on Rust, and I was like, "Hey, well, I'll try out for that," and it worked out pretty well. For sure. Before you started with Mozilla, had you did you have any awareness of Rust? Had you kind of started using it, or was it just yeah. kind of on your peripherals? I had. Um, it was about nine months earlier that I first started working on Rust, and my this was back in twenty. 
12. So this was like long before 1.0. And I basically got fed up with how many bugs there were. So I started submitting pull requests to try and fix them. And that, I kind of snowballed from there. So I was very familiar with Rust by that point, And I had already made a lot of contributions um, up leading up to that. For sure, yeah. So are you, I mean, you've got to be one of the longest standing Rust core team members at this point. <laughs> Well, technically, no, in the sense I'm not no longer on the core team myself, but uh, I know that Nico is definitely uh, f far longer than I am. But for for on the project, I definitely were working on the project for a long, long time. Although I'm not sort of my my focus has like shifted at Mozilla from various places, but but yeah. Gotcha. So, what was your first love uh, as far as programming languages? Ooh, you know, I'm I'm embarrassed to say this, but it's Ruby. I uh, I started out in Java, like computer science AP in the US and whatever, and then I very soon learned Ruby on Rails, and I thought Ruby was the shit. Like, oh man, everything had everything had to be in Ruby, everything had to be in Rails. I had a lot of fun with that, but then then I I, I went to college and I learned learned a few more things at that point. Honestly, it's a pretty popular answer. Uh, I think it's more of a product of the times thing than anything. I'm JavaScript, <laughs> but only because I, I probably came into my own just a couple of years after you when Ruby was on the decline. But uh, yeah, there, there were a couple of Ruby fanatics that were in, in my classes and whatnot. And you know, you could you could tell that they had a really a real passion for their language. They'd, have, <laughs> uh, they'd get heated, to say the least. I I was one of those people. I, uh, I I will definitely admit that. Not super proud of that time in my life, but yeah, it's all good. I think it's fine. <laughs> so, how do you feel about uh, Mozilla and working and working with them? Yeah, I actually I've always been a really huge fan of Mozilla. I um, I what I work on is pretty separate from kind of like Firefox, which is one of the main things coming out of Mozilla. So I've always sort of been like in this little corner. It started off as Mozilla Research, and then it. I don't know, it's transferred names like four or five times. I honestly don't even know what we're called right now. But the way that it's worked for me is kind of, I've always been off on the side, been able to kind of work on what I want to work on, which is basically Rust and WebAssembly and all that. So I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. I've, I've always thought that, I mean, I've always respected the company and like people working here are great. So I would highly recommend it at least. Very cool. So, it's, you know, speaking of which, I think it's about time to dive into the Rust stuff. Uh, I guess, so I, I like to ask this question, even though a lot of people think it's kind of a dumb question and, and maybe you can get this information from elsewhere, but I like the perspective of actual people and, you know, you've got, you're probably one of the closest, you know, two to 500 people in the world when it comes to the Rust language. Um, so I, I want to ask, well, what is your opinion of the current state of Rust? Like, where do you see that it's being used and, and what do you see it's kind of like its chosen purpose to be and you know adoption things like that yeah i um i think i mean my opinion is like by the time we released 1.0 in 2015 that was like my kind of language that was exactly what i wanted i mean i worked on a lot leading up to that but i would say that um, rust has definitely filled out really really well into the niches that it was originally targeted for so like basically all the original goals of rust of a systems programming language that was safe and productive and just kind of modern take on all of that uh it's turned out fantastically so i think that rust has grown really really well in terms of features like getting up to feature parity with c and c++ compilers um it's really nicely filling out niches at companies where uh what we've seen sort of like the bottom-up adoption where sort of engineers are like really interested in it but there's tons of skepticism because it's legitimately like when you're talking about these very systemsy portions they're highly critical extremely difficult to manage or change and so but we've seen kind of the the adoption of rust despite all of these sort of uh 
hurdles to overcome. So it's like a, a very much a a testament to kind of what what Rust is bringing in all those respects. So that's sort of like my opinion, at least on the current state of things. I mean, I, I think it's the the same for going forward as well. I, Rust has a Rust has always had a really good leadership team, a fantastic community, and that's sort of the bread and butter of how you keep a project like this going. For sure, yeah. I think one of the nice things about Rust, uh, and this is kind of one of the things about, you know, maybe like, you know, you'll see in the Lisp community or the Haskell community, um, people often fall in love with the language. People don't often fall out of love with the language for some reason. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, at least for me, that's been the case for Rust, but I, you know, the whole Stack Overflow survey and all that so shows, at least seems to see, seems to indicate that it's pretty true for lots of people in Rust as well. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that Rust was kind of intended to be a systems programming language. Um, how do you feel that it's currently impacting the web? Because I feel like a lot of people are, are either using it for their web projects or trying to. I think it's sort of, it's one of those renaissances where uh, we've seen kind of, how, like JavaScript was never really originally intended to be a server-side language, but we've sort of seen how with a really easy to use runtime and a really accessible package manager, you get this explosive growth of just, it's super easy to write JavaScript on both the web and the server. And I think that, um, but I mean, over time we've realized that like, it's super easy, but there are a lot of situations that aren't really quite scalable for, for JavaScript on either the web or on the server. And so in those kinds of situations, the explosive growth that Field JavaScript was the safety, the ecosystem, the ease of use, and all of that. But like, what you need to transition to, and historically was C and C++, which don't really have that. They obviously don't have safety. But even the accessibility to, to people familiar with JavaScript is not really that great. It's just a real funky system. Cross-platform stuff is really, really a big issue, things like that. And so I think... It's, we've seen that sort of shift where we have all these developers in the JavaScript or Python or Ruby or kind of these communities which are used to safety, platform compatibility, not, not having to worry about that, and like these really nice ecosystems. And we're bringing that in a systems programming language where you can write these scalable servers, these scalable or just fit in these really tight constrained environments or just to be more efficient. But at the same time, you're not sacrificing all of these things you would otherwise have to do when you go to C and C++. So that's sort of what I see Rust's adoption on the web and on the server. I mean, I, I, I'm saying web and server is like relatively highly or closely related. I mean, they're obviously different pieces. So the web is just now coming about with WebAssembly. And so we're kind of seeing all that. And the server we've seen proved many, many times over for, for Rust so far. Yeah, for sure. Uh, do you mentioned having a an accessible API and sort of like a simple runtime that's easy to use? Uh, do you see Dino kind of being in that same sort of uh, ballpark going forward? Honestly, I don't know a lot. You said Dino. I would say Deno. I don't. Know. I, I I know so little about it. I don't even know how to pronounce it actually. <laughs> So I, all I know is it's a uh, alternative. I mean, I I know that kind of the idea, but I I see it as sort of like Node, but like with import statements kind of. So beyond that, though, I'm not honestly. I don't I don't know enough about it to comment too much on it. Yeah, no, that's fine. I yeah, the my view of it, uh, I know pretty much nothing as well. It looks like a runtime for TypeScript written in Rust. Um, so that's basically all I know. But with that being said, so obviously you're you're really into WebAssembly, and I think it's going to be you know one of the biggest things that's probably ever happened in programming. So why don't why don't you talk about that? Where do you see that fitting into things and sort of the future of the web, especially the uh, the kind of um, 
out of the browser use case. That's uh yeah the the outer browser case, we'll, we'll get to that in a second but yeah for for the web use case um it's we've seen sort of on the server side with rest these servers which were written in javascript or ruby or python that really didn't scale quite well so they, they worked great for a while but then once you started to get into larger loads or different resource constraints it just doesn't really quite work in that program in the model and i think the same thing is basically happening on the web where the web has oh my god so many man hours put into it to make these javascript jits as productive and as usable as possible and those are like modern marvels of engineering, which I highly doubt will ever eclipse. Like I don't understand how any JITs work nowadays. They're so, so, so advanced. But uh, even with all of those advancements, even with that, that all the engineering power behind it, we're still seeing these these constraints where things are not running well on the web. So uh, things are various, very various pieces are slow. People are writing languages or have giant projects that are not in JavaScript, but they want to compile to JavaScript or somehow run on the web. And so all of that sort of gives rise to WebAssembly, which is allowing you to run in a much more efficient way than JavaScript. You know, the whole it doesn't have a GC, so it's predictable. It's very fast to download. Kind of all it's solving a lot of the issues of if you transpile. Uh, C and C++ to JavaScript or Rust to JavaScript, fixing those kinds of issues. So WebAssembly is going to be critical for getting these kind of next generation of high performance things on the web. Like imagine, I mean, I'm talking about Final Fantasy. Like if I could open Final Fantasy at a web browser, that would be a complete game changer. Like that's complete, it's so far away, but this is sort of a necessary step to kind of go in that direction. Um, but I, and so I, that's, that's what I see of WebAssembly on the web. And then out of the web, is where we have one of these cases where the web is perfect for running untrusted code. That's kind of the whole point of your web browser is you, you download code constantly, you run it, but it's actually done in a safe manner. But it turns out that it's not really, that ability is not super accessible to everyone else just on a server, in server-like environments, in like cloud hosting environments. But this is a really, really common thing. So this is where virtual machines, Docker come up quite a lot. But even those are relatively heavyweight compared to a WebAssembly runtime. And so this is where I see for the adoption of WebAssembly really picking up, which is where you have a use case which is running untrusted code, but you want to do so in a fast way, which means that you execute the code quickly, which so it doesn't have a very large runtime like JavaScript or something like that. But also uh, it's done in a, in a way that's completely safe where you don't have to worry about site faults and overflows and all that crazy stuff. They're trying to sandbox all that. You have this kind of by default sandboxing it built into WebAssembly and then a nice community around that. So that's sort of like a, at least a taste of the outer browser use case from what I see. For sure, yeah. And I think that there's probably a really awesome opportunity for WebAssembly especially WebAssembly system interface um, to make legacy code bases really easily consumable, um, which I think hopefully will break people kind of out of their box of language choice and we'll, we'll see either people migrating to Rust or to, you know, maybe people even making something else new that like, kind of breaks boundaries or something. Yeah, one of the nice things about WebAssembly is as a as a standard, it's kind of what everyone can compile to, and it's not really language specific. So, when you talk about WebAssembly, a lot of I mean, currently I'm biased, but I synonymize that with Rust because Rust is excellent for compiling to WebAssembly, in my opinion. But uh, otherwise, there is actually a very large community of languages that are going to compile to WebAssembly. So WebAssembly's naturally support C, C++, Rust today, but there's also things like AssemblyScript and eventually um, like Python and Ruby and all of those work and in theory going to come to WebAssembly. I think Go comes to WebAssembly today, but the idea is that 
if you can interact with a WebAssembly module, you're no longer in sort of these towers of like, I have to be in this language ecosystem or I have to rewrite everything for each language ecosystem. But we, we start getting much closer to the world where you write your module in Rust and then I consume it in Ruby. You, know, I, you write your module in Python and I consume it in Rust. And it, that interoperability it, it is sort of a, a very large power, which we have yet to tap into, but I can definitely see where, where WebAssembly is going to go at some point. For sure, yeah. And so um, I guess that kind of leads into this idea of Hey, sorry, I think my audio cut out there for a second. Yeah, you did. You're back now. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, I think that kind of leads into this idea of people consuming uh, and, and building out maybe sort of like APIs or libraries in Rust or even entire code bases um, and then compiling it to WebAssembly. And so I'm I'm curious, what does it look like? Because I haven't done a ton of WebAssembly. It's like on my to-do list consistently and somehow I still don't ever get to it. But, it's all good. Um, what does it look like to sort of define the interface into a WebAssembly code base or library or something? Um, I know that uh, I've read a little bit about Wasm Bindgen sort of like generating this uh, sort of interface for you, but but what does that look like? And is there opportunity for improvement in that area? Oh yeah, this is a huge area and there's always room for improvement here. Um, so at the base level, so if you take away Wasm Bindgen, if you take away your assuming the web, if you're just talking about a pure WebAssembly module where you could run it in or outside the web, it turns out the answer here is it's basically terrible. You can only talk about I32, I64, F32, that kind of stuff, and like maybe in memory if you read and write from it. But it's very, it has a very raw feeling of you can't really say I have an API that takes a string or returns a string, like what you really want to do in a lot of high-level languages. So. That's sort of what WebAssembly at the bare bones give you. It's, I mean, it's intended to be really relatively low-level format. So that, that's what we start with. Um, Bindgen, however, is sort of the iteration on this to kind of what would it look like in JavaScript and the web specifically. So Bindgen is targeted at making that interoperate between JavaScript and Rust as much more seamless than it is. You don't have to talk in just integers. So the idea with Bindgen is you you write your APIs. So you, you write a Rust library. We have like a pub, a pub FN. It takes a couple strings, takes a couple structs. And all you have to do is put this little Bindgen attribute on the function and the related types, and that's it. All of a sudden, when you run Bindgen, you get a JavaScript output where when you consume that in JavaScript, it's effectively exactly what you would expect. So if you, if it takes a string, you pass in a JavaScript string. If it takes in a struct, you have you have some sort of instance you created at some point, or like if Rust returns a struct, you get a JavaScript object, all that good stuff. So that's sort of uh, what, what, what Wasm Engine is trying to do. And so it's, it's a layer over what WebAssembly is exactly today to make the interop between JavaScript and Rust seamless and smooth and as easy as possible. Now, the problem with this, though, is that it's a web-specific solution. It's very specific to JavaScript, the web, everything about it. And so the next phase of this, which we're still, which um, Mozilla and uh, like the, basically the Bytecode Alliance in general is working on, is this idea called interface types. So this is a proposal for WebAssembly, which is not currently standardized or stabilized or even implemented anywhere. But the idea is that we'll have sort of like these uh, shims in a, in a WebAssembly module which, which say literally, I am an API that takes a string or I'm an API that takes an array of records which internally have strings, things like that. And so this is where the WebAssembly 
module itself will natively say uh, it has basically a rich type, uh, a rich grammar of types to choose from, and a rich way to say here's what types are being used, and here's how here's what types are returned and whatnot. And this is all done in a way that's pretty abstract from the actual underlying details. So each language can kind of do its own business. And so that's sort of the next generation. And then with this, we have natively encoded in a WebAssembly module, do you take a string, do you return a string, or is it literally just integers? And then from that point, we're going to start building, we, we can start building out these runtimes in other languages. So if you wanted to consume a WebAssembly module from Python, the, this translation layer has a first class way to say, oh, okay, I'm going to translate a Python string to a WebAssembly string and all that. So this is sort of, that's like the next generation, but it's still it's still on the horizon. So we're, we're, we're working towards it in kind of a slow and steady pace, but it'll take a bit to get there. Gotcha. And uh, is is this the kind of thing where the community at large is looking for more contribution? Um, yes and no. It's it's still very early days, so we don't necessarily have like a prototype to play around with. Um, but what this is, I mean, as with all WebAssembly proposals, they actually are all online and anyone can join the, the CG meetings where they're discussed and everything and help out with the design. So it's probably not the easiest proposal to jump in and help out with because there's a, it's there's still a lot of pieces that are kind of in flux at a very core level. But um, I mean, certainly with Wasm Bindgen, there's a lot of places to jump in and help out with, uh, just exercise it, see what's useful, see what's not, try and find performance pitfalls that we can help influence engines, things like that. So I think overall, it's not really in a great place for contribution, but it is still in a place for possible contribution, I would say. Gotcha. And do you see... Uh... If let's say WebAssembly and, and and WASI get big and are starting to be used very like commonly at, at corporations and whatnot, do you see a, an opportunity for languages that their only purpose is to compile to WebAssembly? I think that'll definitely start happening. Like AssemblyScript is a great example of one that already I think the only purpose of it is to compile to WebAssembly. But I could imagine that, um, especially with the GC proposals for WebAssembly, that's that will start happening much more often because it turns out I think a lot of people only run their code in the web or cloud environments, which are running sandbox code. And so if you're only running your code in an environment that takes WebAssembly as input, I think it's pretty natural to assume at some point we're going to have pure WebAssembly languages. What do you think about, I, I saw some discussion about this on Twitter the other day. What do you think about a programming model uh, where you call an API uh, with some sort of uh, input and you receive WebAssembly code as output. Oh man, that'd be pretty slick. That's like a that's like like, like function a, continuations over the internet. <laughs> yeah, some sort of some sort of uh, I don't know, like uh, yeah, I don't know, some sort of generative API. I could imagine there's like you could even have it like some sort of like signing like signing it and trusting it. So like you kind of offload the compute to a remote server, but then you know that it computed it correctly or something like that. That'd be pretty, that'd be pretty awesome. Hey, well, maybe I found myself a side project. Yeah, there you go. Um, so I guess uh, with all that in mind, um, is Rust where you see yourself in the next, you know, X number of years, no matter what? Like, even if you leave Mozilla, are you pretty much just going to focus on on Rust and that ecosystem? You know, I have a hard time seeing myself ever working not in Rust at this point. I think, I mean, I am extremely highly intertwined in like the Rust just everything like I, I've just I'm very used to it very familiar with a lot of it but I've I, I mean I do still on a relatively like a weekly monthly cadence I, I dabble in other languages where like I'll like work just requires C++ or C or Python or Go or something but every time I work in another language I'm just like oh man 
I can't wait to get back to my rust. Well, I, I need my rust. So yeah, I uh, I can't. I, it's hard for me to imagine myself working primarily not in rust at this point. For sure, and I think a lot of people are looking to uh, move into rust development for their kind of their full time thing. Speaking of which, do you happen to know of any uh, open rust positions that somebody listening might be able to go after? Unfortunately, no. Yeah, I'm not, not not familiar with any at Mozilla, and that's the only one I would be familiar with. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, actually, I think a lot of people are really hungry for this. A lot of this information. Um, I just put up yesterday. I put up an interview that I did with Steve Klabnik, who I'm, I'm sure that you at least know of. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've definitely worked together quite a lot. Yeah, I figured you did, but you know, I didn't want to assume. Um, and that has gone like it. That has gotten really popular. I won't give out numbers because I don't want to out myself, but yeah, that episode in a day has gotten about as many listens as the previous five episodes combined. Nice. And so I feel like the the Rust community is just kind of sitting on Reddit or something, just reloading, looking for new things. Um, <laughs> I, I do ready. get that feeling too from some from time to time where I mean, I'll also admit I'm one of those people where sometimes I'll kind of sit there for five minutes and just refresh, being like, come on, give me give me new information. For sure. So, uh, what exactly is WASM time? WASM time is an out of browser runtime for WebAssembly written in Rust. So, currently, it is only a JIT. It uh, basically will ingest programs, JIT compile them, and then run them. Um, so, it comes in a couple of different forms. We have a CLI, which is just you run WASM time, WASM, and then it'll kind of run it as a WASI API or kind of just compile it. And then, but there's also a Rust API, which gives you sort of programmatic access to WebAssembly, which is uh, very similar to the JavaScript API, but a little bit more powerful in some regards. Or maybe it is all the same nowadays, I forget. But anyway, otherwise, I mean, there's also a couple bindings for um, .NET. Go and Python. So basically, it's the API for running WebAssembly, embedding into a different application, or it's the CLI program that runs. Makes sense. And so, uh, is that is that kind of what you're working on um, at Mozilla? Is that in Wasm Bindgen? Yep, those are my two primary projects right now. I, uh, I'm currently working on, uh, so there's this proposal called module linking, which is intended to be a, a predecessor or a, I guess, a prerequisite of this interface types that I was talking about. So I'm working on implementing that in Wasm time currently. Cool. Yeah, so I had this idea for a, sort of like a perspective um, tech stack for the web. And I, I'm curious what your thoughts about it are. Yeah, hit so me. Now it, Nowadays, the uh, and I'll, I'll explain kind of where the purpose of caring about this comes from, too. So nowadays, uh, kind of a lot of things are done in JavaScript. And I think if you're talking about sort of your average developer who's just like, I need to pay my bills, so I have to go get a job at a place, like most of us are using JavaScript. Um, yep. And a lot of us are using JavaScript everywhere. So it's like JavaScript or TypeScript on both the client and the server. I know that I myself fall into that category, not necessarily <laughs> out of like, happiness or willingness to be doing that but because the, that's where the the money is yeah that um, makes sense and so i think uh, a lot of people are kind of looking to uh, break out of that and one of the one of the things that keeps coming up for me is like oh man i love rust like what can i use it for and you've got all these are we x yet websites that are out there mm -hmm. um and the one for the web is kind of like totally Rust is awesome. Use it for everything. But just so you know, databases are going to be kind of weird. Like it's going to be weird to get to, to connect to one and like do things right and all that stuff. So basically like the data layer for like a typical web stack is still kind of weak. And so my thoughts were like, you know, when it comes to JavaScript, because it's not incredibly fast, people typically scale up horizontally 
instead where they like put their data layer or some sort of heavy service behind a, a load balancer and they just spin up a thousand of them or whatever and it's like doesn't matter that it's low because <laughs> yeah. we can just we can just pay an extra you know 12 cents an hour on aws and it's fine like if we've got the traffic to support the the money and the infrastructure there we just spin up more of them it's okay right um and so my question is what about kind of combining the two where you've got like you think about a typical full stack web framework that uses WebAssembly to compile the Rust. All in Rust is the ideal, and it uses a you know WebAssembly to compile some of the stuff for the front end so that the front end can can do its thing. But you can write it all in Rust, and then you've got the actual server layer, the business layer, uh, like the sort of the heart of the application written in Rust as well, and that just kind of does its thing normally. And then the data layer could be like transpiled, compiled, whatever you want to call it, into JavaScript, which then gets scaled up horizontally to kind of serve as like a data layer and maybe uses event sourcing or something to kind of ensure, you know, I don't know, sort of a consistency between um, the instances. What, what do you think about that? Are there some flaws there or is it maybe like impractical for some reasons? Yeah, I mean, this is honestly, this you're not the first person to, to think about something like this. The idea of writing your large web app in like a pure Rust or only WebAssembly or something like that, uh, that's been a, a holy grail that many people have been trying to get to. I know like uh, just from a, a small perspective, people want to run just WebAssembly on the web where they can natively include a WebAssembly module on a page with literally zero JS to uh, instantiate it. But I mean, we're, we're, we're getting there, but it'll, it'll take a little bit to get there. But um, other than that, uh, one of the nice things about this is that so this is probably not the most practical today just sort of like the current deployment environments just generally they they they'll like vms and so they'll expect except rust code and if your rust compiles web assembly it probably also compiles and runs fine on linux and so uh, like in that sense like you can probably already get get away with the rust aspect it's more of like uh I mean, you either have it all Rust aspect or kind of you have a bunch of mixture of languages. But the really cool thing I think that's really possible at some point is so a lot of the costs for this are associated with running these big VMs and big data centers doing big things. But as you mentioned, uh, the JavaScript logic for all this is not exactly CPU intensive. The data layer is just kind of moving bytes from point A to point B. And so there's not really a lot of need for it to be in a whole whopping VM taking all these requests. You can It's this idea of you can just scale it up horizontally a whole lot and not worry a whole lot about it. And so this is where I, I think in the future we're going to see a lot of growth of WebAssembly in this area where you can uh, basically your costs from running a server farm will be a lot cheaper where your little tiny module that's running doesn't actually require the full resources of an entire VM behind it. But the like some sort of runtime will be sort of managing a lot for you and like your WebAssembly module will be talking to that runtime and doing various things. So I, I I basically think that uh, it's probably not the most practical today, just because like running as just a Rust binary might see, might work pretty much at, well enough as is. But in the future, I can definitely see how WebAssembly is going to be a, a game changer for the, the, the economics here on, on a cloud platform side. So we still have to sort of wait for these companies to like have the, the platforms to actually have, build an application like this. But I have to imagine it's going to happen sooner or later. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, really quick detour. I, I this is totally unrelated, but sure. um, I'm I'm trying to like kind of throw some a little bit of like CS current events uh, into into the mix with these interviews and just kind of get some opinions. Um, I came across something strange yesterday, and I'm not really a member of this particular programming community, so I, I don't really have uh, any insight myself. So I, I'm kind of, I'm curious if you do and, and what you think about it. Um, 
do you use Haskell at all? Have you ever used Haskell? I've never had the pleasure of doing so. I actually wanted to. I've only ever used SML, which I, it's similar, but I've never I've never actually compiled Haskell. I've just done like kind of the derivative languages or ancestors or whatever. Yeah, for sure. Same here. I've used a little bit of Elm, no Haskell, uh, which I think is probably kind of strange. But yeah, <laughs> that aside, uh, I they, they came out with this some some company came out with this new web framework called IHP, and it's it's supposed to be uh, like Haskell on Rails. Um, and it's supposed to be just like a really pleasant uh, development experience. It even comes with like a templating thing, kind of like JSX using Haskell and it's type safe called HSX, which I think is cool. Nice. Um, and so in the process of just like familiarizing myself with this and looking up some Haskell stuff, I came across this, this uh, article that came out yesterday, actually. So this is like hot off the press Ooh, man. called the elephant in the Haskell room or like the Haskell elephant in the room or some, something like that. Some, something to do with Haskell and elephants. Um, <laughs> And this guy wrote this uh, <clears throat> this piece, and apparently he's like a well-respected Haskell community member, very, very good at the, you know, sort of doing the science-y, math-y stuff with the language that people try to get you spooked about or whatever. And um, he wrote this article where he was essentially saying that there's a ton of, like, sort of conflation between the Haskell community and cryptocurrency, and <clears throat> that he strongly views cryptocurrency as being a Ponzi scheme and a scam that's like predicated on tricking people into like buying things and, and selling it to a greater fool, uh, quotation, like air quotes. Oh, um, man. I have no idea what's going on in the cryptocurrency world. I don't know anything about it. I've just kind of never focused on it for any reason. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, uh, have you, because this guy, essentially what he was trying to say was that there are people in the Haskell community, especially some of the like leading companies that are helping build open source solutions that are empowering these systems and they're benefiting from it somehow, either financially or otherwise. And that is, it's, it was essentially like a call to action. Like if you're in a, if you're in the Haskell community, you need to like denounce these companies because they're evil. And if you're working for those companies, you need to leave. Otherwise you're evil and uh, this oh, wow. sort of thing. And then this heated uh response came out from like the owner of one of these companies that was basically oh, yeah. like you're a fool you have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> so uh, what are your thoughts do you do you not care because we can totally move on but i'm curious what you think no it's all good i i'm in the same boat as you though i don't know a ton about cryptocurrencies and i i mean honestly i kind of keep i have like a 10 foot pole and i make sure that i'm at least that far away from cryptocurrency myself but i, I can definitely i've seen that effect happen before where the, uh, i i mean honestly like even literally cryptocurrencies WebAssembly is a pretty big thing there as well like i think there's a lot of um interest in running sort of i think right now there's like there's like something about ethereum and something about running programs in the blockchain but something about how it's not super standard and they want to move to WebAssembly or something like that so basically they had general ideas of doing WebAssembly like things on the blockchain, but it's like a slightly different requirements than WebAssembly itself. But um so but I've I don't know. I mean like I think that there's a point to be made about how like you have I mean I I, I would say that blockchains are evil is obviously a subjective opinion. I don't think that's like provably correct or incorrect, but a subjective opinion of whether a company is doing good or bad things. I, I feel like the open source like the idea of open source is actually somewhat resilient to that and like somewhat sort of how like open source, whether you have evil or good intentions will sort of benefit quite a lot if you contribute back to it, no matter what, because presumably if you have evil intentions, you know, it'll eventually, you'll, you'll get weeded out. Like we have a generally moral society, which will eventually weed out that sort of evilness. Or, I don't know, but the lasting contribute, the lasting impact of your contributions to open source will actually st will, will still be there. 
And so I, I personally take a somewhat further away point of view where, I mean, there's still like clearly bad things and clearly good things. But if you have like a, a, a not terrible company contributing to open source, it feels like it's still a, a net benefit for everyone. Because I mean, I know a lot of people think that Google and Facebook and all those are the, the definition of evil nowadays, but they, they make a lot of legitimate, really good contributions back to open source, which I think are really, really valuable. And I mean, again, the whole, it's still subjective whether you think they're actually evil or not. For sure. Honestly, uh, you know, people people can say whatever they want about Facebook. I'm not into using the app myself or anything, but like until the company releases React 2 and it's written in Dart, I'm not gonna <laughs> like I'm not gonna be too mad. Uh, for whatever, that seems to be like Google's thing is they release something, they get people to love it, and then they just re-release it in Dart. There was uh there was GWT2, which was called two, and like it was totally a complete rewrite in Dart, and it was just really strange. But of course, like your manager is like, oh, it's version two. Just like click the update button, you know, and it's good. <laughs> oh Same thing God. with Angular JS. They come out with Angular 2. And dude, honestly, I just sometimes I sit around and I think about how much business value and like sort of really negative financial impact the release of Angular 2 had on the world. Because I've been yeah. at multiple companies now that have like struggled to sort of maintain an AngularJS app while also rewriting it into Angular 2 or something like that. And I know that there's tons of money being lost. But see, there's also tons of money being gained from the consultants that only work that work specifically about the upgrade from Angular 1 to Angular 2. So it could be a money-making business for you as well. <laughs> for sure. But I mean more about the businesses that have to consume like the end result of that software. No, yeah, yeah I know what you mean. And I mean, that that's it's those kinds of things which are... It's it's always sort of a miracle of modern, like how these companies or how these things actually work in practice, like how everyone can be off the ground actually working with all of this nowadays. For sure. Okay, so uh, what are the uh, what are the big things in the Rust community? What are the things that you think are really important that are happening now, or like are the things to to be aware of for people that are doing Rust? Ooh. See, that's actually a uh, that's gotten to become a much more difficult question for me to answer. I've I've started to sort of distance myself from Rust development, focusing more on WebAssembly. So, honestly, I don't know a huge amount about the development of Rust right now. I think I would probably say what you would probably read on the front page of Reddit right now, which is basically like the 2021 edition is is a hot topic. It's probably coming soon. Um, Associated or no, not uh, const generics are likely going to be landing in some form stabilized, which is going to be really nice for just generic arrays and removing the weird. So you can't have a clone impl for arrays more than thirty-two elements in length in the standard library. Just weird stuff like that's going to finally go away. But the other thing that I would say is like I, I was I would definitely say I mean I'm biased obviously, but the WebAssembly aspect of Rust is going to continue to be very large. WebAssembly is a continually moving target where there's a lot of features being added to WebAssembly. Like uh, some examples are like SIMD and threading support uh, are coming down the pike and are relatively getting to the point that they're pretty mature engines and we want to make sure that Rust is kind of keeping up with this and has a best-in-class story for not just compiling to WebAssembly but also using these features like SIMD and all that. Um, so I think that's that, that's definitely something I, like, I would personally consider, or I would personally say people should watch as well, just the WebAssembly story and how Rust and WebAssembly is going to be evolving. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. So I guess we'll we'll uh, end this with a new segment uh, that I'm that I'm calling "Ask an Expert Things to Make You Feel Dumb." Um, <laughs> and and so, could you give me your best effort 
quick and simple and direct explanation of what in the hell lifetimes are. Ooh. I mean, let, let me think. If you want to be quick and... Oh, quick. Okay. Lifetimes are a way of... Oh, my God. This is not easy to be either quick or direct. No, well, take take your time. It doesn't have to be <laughs> super rushed. I just... I want to come away understanding them because I don't currently, so... Yeah. All right. So here, here's here's my take on this. Lifetimes are a way of safely using data that you do not own yourself in a way such that it prevents use after freeze, seg faults, things like uh, those kinds of class of memory allocation bugs. And so it's a way to sort of for the compiler to be connecting all this together to make sure that you are not hitting that class of bugs. I think that's probably okay. a terrible explanation, but it's what I got. No, I mean, I think that that makes a lot of sense. So like if you were going to have somebody pass in a string to you and you needed to kind of take ownership of it briefly, you would create a lifetime to let the compiler know when you own it and when you stop owning it. Yep. And that way the compiler knows that. So when I give you something that has a lifetime on it, you, can, you can't persist a reference outside of that lifetime. The, the compiler proves that you're only accessing it within that lifetime. Okay. Well, I definitely think uh, that that does help a bit. Um, <laughs> I'll have to parse that sort of offline and, and see if I can't uh, come to grips with uh, the reality of it. Well, I also suspect I'm not going to get any accolades for the best teacher for Rust. Yeah, well, no worries. As, as long as, <laughs> you're in my you're in my top three, but of course that's because you are the third person that. Uh, <laughs> so you at least qualify. Nice. Um, all right, so do you have any closing thoughts or remarks? Are there any projects that you kind of want to shout out or like do you have a website or something that you want people to go check out? Ooh, no, God, no. I, uh, well, no, no, in the sense of like what I would think is like, I don't know, like my, I, I, the thing that I feel like people, what I should be saying is like my Twitter feed, but I've made one post there six years ago and I never posted again. So don't look at my Twitter or anything like that. No, no, no. The projects that I would say are basically, um, so the, the Byte Code Alliance for as like a general one where there's a lot of WASM stuff happening inside of there. WASM Times, a member of that, but we're going to continue to see a lot of really interesting web, WebAssembly related projects coming out of that kind of primarily focusing on this ad browser use case, running in other languages, running in other, other ecosystems, and kind of getting everyone to work nicely in that regard. So there's a lot of, lot of cool stuff happening there, and I would highly recommend if people are interested to, to follow that. And otherwise, uh, Wasm Bindgen, as I would always say, is your, uh, a really good option for the whole JavaScript web and WebAssembly aspect. But if you're interested to help out, always looking for contributors, PRs, or just users to, to help exercise it. Makes sense. All right. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Hopefully I can convince you to, to uh, do it again. Maybe I'll trick you or something. I don't know. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. All right, folks. That wraps it up for today's episode of The Virtual World. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into Alex's mind. I had a ton of fun talking with him, and I'm definitely looking forward to doing it again sometime. Coming up soon, we have an interview with Eric Norman, a Lisper and functional programming fanatic who's big on YouTube. I will also be interviewing Stephen Diel, a successful software engineer and the author of the recent Haskellifant article. Sometime this week, I will also be releasing the first episode in a new series that I am calling The Water Cooler. These will be casual conversations with folks that may or may not be useless and boring, but also may end up being interesting to someone. Thanks again for listening. This is Ty signing off, and don't forget to enjoy this tune by Plasmario.